Welcome back, Hemming Brainiacs, to the Hemming Brainiac podcast, the best podcast in the whole bloody world. Talking about chapter 8 of Of Human Bondage, the vicar is an even bigger ass in this chapter. And the final line seems layered. Thoughts? J.P. Guthrie said the final line was quite sweet. Very much without darkness one cannot know light. Excuse me, whether that applies to the vicar is yet to be seen. I have the hiccups now. Fix the Blue said, wow, an emotionally charged chapter. The vicar is just truly an awful selfish man. I know it was a different time, but he's still horrible to everyone. His way or the highway. Yeah, agreed. I just find it funny that he can just be that awful. Um, Back in the day, I suppose you could get away with awfulness. Uh, I love that Mrs. Carey and Philip have bonded over it, even if it was sad and upsetting for them both to get there. They were both fairly awkward around each other till they could be more honest and open. They are now both in the same boat, I guess, living with Mr. Carey. His will and wishes come first. It seems he has no issue using the power of righteousness, I am a man of God, to put force behind his will. Anyone else thinking that Mrs. Carey's new closeness to Philip will possibly be the motivator behind Mr. Carey packing Philip off to boarding school? Damn, that's a good point. Could their closeness be a sticking point for them and that something that um, the vicar doesn't like? That would be interesting, but it wouldn't... Yeah, now that you say it, I could I could see that. Swim said the mum fishy said, I found the description of Mr. Carey's Roman Catholic lead leanings interesting it appears the vicar is a supporter of the oxford movement oxford movement 19th century movement centered on at the university of oxford that sought a renewal of catholic or roman catholic thought and practice within the church of england in opposition to the protestant tendencies of the church the argument was that the anglican church was by history and identity a truly catholic church In regards to the term chapel, which Mr. Carey uses as a reason that Philip cannot go to Mary Ann's home, for historical reasons, chapel is also often the term used by independent or non-conformist, i.e. not Church of England denominations for their place of worship in Great Britain, even where they are large and in practice they operate as a parish church. Um, Okay, cool. I kind of followed that. (laughs) listeners of the podcast previously will know that as soon as it starts talking about churches and stuff i do tend to tune out a little bit um i do hope that it's not a heavy theme in this book because i just struggle to pay attention Uh, i am norwegian says i love these little moments of insight that you get into the mind of a child it reminds me a little of dosto how some rare insight is offered so plainly I'm excited to learn more about Marianne. Every line about her now is something about how she's asserting her refusals to work more. But I think there has to be more to her than that. Laura Weistich says, I hope Marianne is a main character. She's becoming pretty interesting. I'm liking her more. The vicar, however, we're still waiting for something redeemable. Yeah, he sure is fulfilling the kind of evil step-parent role pretty pretty nicely um all right i'm gonna keep moving i'm gonna keep reading and just keep moving to the next chapter chapter nine 
goes like this. On the following Sunday, when the vicar was making his preparations to go into the drawing room for his nap, all the actions of his life were conducted with ceremony, and Mrs. Carey was about to go upstairs, Philip asked, what shall, I, what shall I do if I'm not allowed to play? Can't you sit still for once and be quiet? I can't sit still till tea time. Mr. Carey looked out the window, but it was cold and raw, and he, had, and he could not suggest that Philip should go into the garden. I know what you can do. You can learn by heart the collect for the day. I, uh, he took the prayer book, which was used for prayers for the harmonium, and turned the pages till he came to the place he wanted. It's not a long one. If you can say it without a mistake, when I come home to tea, you shall have the top of my egg. Mrs. Carey drew up Philip's chair to the dining room table. They had bought him a high chair by now and placed the book in front of him. The devil finds work for idle hands to do, said Mr. Carey. He put some more coals on the fire so that there should be a cheerful blaze when he came into tea and went into the drawing room. He loosened his collar, arranged the cushions and settled himself comfortably on the sofa. But thinking the drawing room a little chilly, Mrs. Carey brought him a rug from the hall. She put it over his legs and tucked it around his feet. She drew the blinds so that the light should not offend his eyes. And since he had closed them already, went out of the room on tiptoe. The vicar was at peace with himself today, and in ten minutes he was asleep. He snored softly. It was the sixth Sunday after Epiphany, and the collect began with the words, O God, whose blessed Son has, was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil and make us the sons of God and heirs of eternal life. Philip read it through. He could not make no sense of it. He could, so he could make no sense of it. He began saying the words aloud to himself, but many of them were unknown to him, and the construction of the sentence was strange. He could, get, he could not get more than two lines in his head, and his attention was constantly wandering. There were fruit trees trained on the walls of the vicarage, and a long twig beat now and then against the window pane. Sheep grazed stolidly in the field beyond the garden. It seemed as though there were knots inside his brain. This, then panic seized him, that he would not know the words by tea time, and he kept on whispering them to himself quickly. He did not try to understand, but merely to get them parrot-like in his memory. Mrs. Carey could not sleep that afternoon, and by four o'clock she was so wide awake that she came downstairs. She thought she would hear Philip his collect so that he should make no mistakes when he said it to his uncle. His uncle then would be pleased. He would see that the boy's heart was in the right place. But when Mrs. Carey came to the dining room and was about to go in, she heard a sound that made her stop suddenly. Her heart gave a little jump. She turned away and quickly, quietly slipped out of the front door. She walked around the house till she came to the dining room window and then cautiously looked in. Philip was still sitting on the chair. She had put him in, but his head was on the table buried in his arms, and he was sobbing desperately. She saw the convulsive movement of the shoulders. Mrs. Carey was frightened. A thing that had always struck her about the child was that he seemed so collected. She had never seen him cry, and now she realised that his calmness was some instinctive shame of showing his feelings. He hid himself to weep. Without thinking that her husband disliked being wakened suddenly, she burst into the drawing room. William, William, she said, the boy's crying as though his heart would break. Mr. Carey sat up and disentangled himself from the rug about his leg. What's he got to cry about? I don't know. Oh, William, we can't let the boy be unhappy. Do you think it's our fault? If we'd had children, we'd have known what to do. 
Mr. Carey looked at her in perplexity. He felt extraordinarily helpless. He can't be crying because I gave him the collect to learn. It's not more than ten lines. Don't you think I might take him some picture books to look at, William? There are some of the Holy Land. There couldn't be anything wrong with that. Very well, I don't mind. Mrs. Carey went into the study to collect books. To collect books was Mr. Carey's only passion, and he never went into Turkenbury without spending an hour or two in the second-hand shop. He always brought back four or five musty volumes. He never read them, for he had long lost the habit of reading, but he liked to turn the pages, look at the illustrations, if they were illustrated, and mend the bindings. He welcomed wet days, because on them he could stay at home without pangs of conscience and spend the afternoon with white of egg and a glue pot patching up the Russia leather of some battered quattro. He had many volumes of old travels with steel engravings, and Mrs. Carey quite quickly found two which described Palestine. She coughed elaborately at the door. So that Philip should have time to compose himself, she felt that he would be humiliated if she came up upon him in the midst of his tears. Then she rattled the door handle. When she went in, Philip was poring over the prayer book, hiding his eyes with his hands so that she might not see he had been crying. Do you know the collect yet, she said. He did not answer for a moment, and she felt he did not trust his voice. She was oddly embarrassed. I can't learn it by heart, he said at last with a gasp. Oh, well, never mind, she said. You needn't. I've got some picture books for you to look at. Come and sit on my lap and we'll look at them together. Philip slipped off his chair and limped over to her. He looked down so that she should not see his eyes. She put her arms around him. Look, she said, that's the place where our blessed Lord was born. She showed him an eastern town with flat roofs and cupolas and minarets. In the foreground was a group of palm trees and under them were resting two Arabs and some camels. Philip passed his hand over the pictures as if he wanted to feel the houses and lose habiliments of the nomads. Read what it says, he asked. Mrs. Carey, in her even voice, read the opposite page. It was a romantic narrative of some eastern traveller of the thirties, pompous maybe, but fragrant with the emotion with which the east came to the generation that followed Byron and Chateaubriand. In a moment or two, Philip interrupted her. I want to see another picture. When Mary Amon came in and Mrs. Carey rose to help her lay the cloth, Philip took the book in his hands and hurried through the illustrations. It was with dif- it was with difficulty that his aunt induced him to put the book down for tea. He had forgotten his horrible struggle to get the collect by heart. He had forgotten his tears. Next day it was raining and he asked for the book again. Mrs. Carey gave it to him joyfully, talking over his future with her husband. She had found that both desired him to take orders and this eagerness for the book, which described places hallowed by the presence of Jesus, seemed a good sign. It looked as though the boy's mind addressed itself naturally to holy things, but in a day or two he asked for more books. Mr. Carey took him into the study, showed him the shelf in which he kept illustrated works, and chose for him one that dealt with Rome. Philip took it greedily. The pictures led him to a new amusement. He began to read the page before and the page after, each engraving to find out what it was about, and soon he lost all interest in his toys. Then... When no one was near, he took out books for himself, and perhaps because the first impression of his mind was made by an eastern town, he found his chief amusement in those which described the Levant. His heart beat with excitement at the pictures of mosques and rich palaces, but there was one in a book on Constantinople which peculiarly stirred his imagination. It was called the Hall of a Thousand Columns. It was a Byzantine cistern 
which the popular fancy had endowed with fantastic vastness, and the legend which he read told that a boat was always moored at the entrance to tempt the unweary. But no traveller venturing into the darkness had ever been seen again, and Philip wondered whether the boat went on for ever through one pillared alley after another, or came at last to some strange mansion. One day a good fortune befell him, for he hit upon Lane's translation of The Thousand Nights and a Night. The Thousand Nights and a Night. He was captured first by the illustrations, and then he began to read. To start with, the stories that dealt with magic, and then the others. And those he liked, he read again and again. He could think of nothing else. He forgot the life about him. He had to be called two or three times before he would come to his dinner. Insensibly, he formed the most delightful habit in the world, the habit of reading. He did not know that thus he was providing himself with a refuge from all the distress of life. He did not know either that he was creating for himself an unreal world, which would make the real world of every day a source of bitter disappointment. Presently, he began to read other things. His brain was precocious. His uncle and aunt, seeing that he occupied himself and neither worried nor made a noise, ceased to trouble themselves about him. Mr. Carey had so many books that he did not know them, and as he read little, he forgot the odd lots he had bought at one time and another because they were cheap, haphazard among the sermons and homilies, the travels, the lives of the saints, the fathers, the histories of the church, were old-fashioned novels, and these Philip at last discovered. He chose them by their titles, and the first he read was The Lancaster Witches, and then he read The Admirable Crichton, and then many more. Whenever he started a book with two solitary travellers riding along the brink of a desperate ravine, he knew he was safe. The summer was come now, and the gardener, an old sailor, made his hammock and fixed it up for him in the branches of a weeping willow. And here, the long hours, he lay hidden from anyone who might come to the vicarage, reading, reading passionately. Time passed, and it was July, August came, and on Sundays the church was crowded with strangers, and the collection at the offertory often amounted to two pounds. Neither the vicar nor Mrs. Carey went out of the garden much during this period, for they disliked strange faces, and they looked upon the visitors from London with aversion. The house opposite was taken for six weeks by a gentleman who had two little boys, and he sent in to ask if Philip would like to go and play with them. But Mrs. Carey returned a polite refusal. She was afraid that Philip would be corrupted by little boys from London, he was going to be a clergyman, and it was necessary that he should be preserved from contamination. She liked to see him, an infant Samuel. All right, there we go. That's chapter nine. Have your say over at the subreddit. Thank you very much for listening, and I will see you tomorrow.